to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. So we're in Numbers, finishing up the book of Numbers today. So again, like we've been having to do, we're going to go through kind of the thousand feet up. I'm going to let you know some of the stuff um, that's really worth diving in on. All of it is, but uh, some, some big things that come up. And then hopefully in your own time, you can read through some of this yourself and ask some good questions. There's a lot here. But if you remember last time, Numbers and sort of our timeline of the Pentateuch numbers outlines what is basically happening for the time between when Israel leaves Mount Sinai, which is where Exodus and Leviticus takes place, and before they come into take possession of the promised land. So it is the time where they are in transition. They have been brought out of Egypt. They hung out at Sinai where God gave them the Ten Commandments and the rules and the tabernacle. And then they have set out from Mount Sinai and are going in to take conquest, to take uh, possession of the, the land that God had promised to Abraham in the book of Genesis. But, as we saw last time, what should have been a relatively short trip and a relatively short book uh, for them going from Mount Sinai and taking possession of the promised land got stretched out by 40 years because when they came up to the promised land, they sent spies, they sent 12 spies, so representatives from each tribe, into the promised land, spied out. And these 12 spies came back, and with the exception of two, uh, the other 10 spies gave a bad report to the people and said that this land is uh, beautiful and rich and flowing with milk and honey, but the people there are too big for us. We couldn't fight them, we couldn't defeat them, which is crazy because God had just defeated the Egyptian army. But they said, no, it's not possible, we can't do it. And so all of the nation listened to, the, to that lie, that, that false testimony about God, really. It was a lie about God and what God couldn't do. And all of the people listened to those lying priests, those lying uh, preachers, and ended up rebelling against God and saying, God brought us out here to just kill us. Let's turn around and let's go back to Egypt, because at least in Egypt we... Uh, we knew that we weren't going to be killed by, by mean armies or things like that. And God got very upset with them, partly because that was just disobedience. You know, Partly God had said, hey, I promised this, go do this. Um, but I think more than anything, God was upset because that was not his plan. And they were actively, by believing this lie, they were working against the plan that he had. And God is about, he's not, gonna let, he's not even going to let us go about uh, causing his promises to fail. And so, because of that, he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. You guys were all afraid that you would drop dead in the wilderness because these armies were going to get you. Well, I'm going to keep you safe from those armies, but you are going to drop dead in the wilderness. And I'm going to cause you to wander around for 40 years until every one of this generation that rebelled against me and didn't take possession is dead. And I'm going to try again with their kids. Okay? And we will go in and take possession of the promised land through their kids, through their kids that they were afraid that would get killed by the armies. God says, no, nah, I'm going to do it. So that's where we kind of ended last week. We didn't see this, but I think this is really um, worth looking at for what we're going into today. In chapter 14 is where the people listen to the spies and they rebel. At the end of chapter 14 and verse 39, Moses has relayed to all of the people what God's plan is, that God has determined that they will 
um, have to wander in the wilderness to not take possession of the promised land. They will all die in the wilderness. And in verse 39, it says, When Moses told these words to all of the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning, and they went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to that place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So this is some delayed obedience, you know. It's like they, they had already gotten the pronouncement from God. They had already gotten God's command. And they said, well, now, now we'll listen. Now we'll do it. God said, I'm sorry, it's too late. Okay. And so they then presumed, okay, because um, God, God corrected them through Moses. Moses says, don't do that. It doesn't work like that. Okay. God is, God is not with you anymore. He's, he's given you a new promise. And they said, no, no, no. We want the old promise. And we don't want the consequences of our sins. We're going to act presumptuously. And they went out and acted presumptuously. And it says God wasn't with them. And they got their butts kicked. Okay? And a lot of people died. And, and then it was in that, uh, on that low note that they left the brink of the promised land. They could have looked into the promised land and seen it. And so they left and they went back down into pretty much the wilderness of Arabia and uh, Sinai. And they just wandered around in circles for 40 years. So that's what happens through um, the rest of the, the following chapters. There's some interesting stuff in there that you can read on your own. There is another rebellion, things like that. But let's go all the way to chapter 20. And chapter 20 is probably near the very end of this 40-year period. And there's really not a whole lot uh, said about what happens in that 40-year period. There's a, f- there's a few instances, but really for the most part, you just assume that it was a really lame 40 years, you know, and they're just wandering. But the whole time they're being fed by the manna, the whole time God is giving them water, the whole time he says their food and their, um, or their clothes and their shoes are not wearing out. So God is taking care of them. They're not necessarily suffering, but they are not in possession of the promised land. And so it's just kind of 40 years. Well, then we get to chapter 20. We won't read all of this, but the, you see at the very beginning, it says, The people of Israel and the whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So Miriam is Moses' uh, sister. She dies at the end of this chapter. You can see in chapter 22, they journeyed from Kadesh. The people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, uh, verse 24, let Aaron be gathered to his people, for she, he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel. And then Aaron dies. So this chapter is bookended by Miriam dying and Aaron dying. So there's a lot of death. This is kind of the, the spirit that's hanging over this time of wandering is just death. But in the middle of these two bookends of death is a, a kind of unfortunate story. So you see in verse 2, now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. 
Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? This is just the familiar, they're still grumbling, they're still complaining, they're still doing this. Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And they're talking about the wilderness that they've been resigned to wander in. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble... Sorry, I lost my place. Where are we? Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from the, before the Lord as he commanded him. Now this is kind of familiar, water coming out of a rock again. Okay, um, But this time, God says to Moses, Okay, Moses, get everybody together, bring everybody together. Uh, this is the new generation. Remember they talked about our brothers falling, perishing. So they're saying, we wish that we had died like everybody else had died. So Moses is saying, bring everybody there, stand before the rock, and tell the rock to bring forth water. Okay. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Now just stop right there. Did Moses do what God told him to do? What do you think, Mary? No. No? What? He didn't tell the rock. He struck the rock. Okay. And, and what did he say when he struck the rock? Were they nice words? No. Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, there's, it's, it's insane to me that this... Um, I, I'm not as wise as God, so I don't know. But there is very little description in these verses, but they matter very prominently in the story. Um, so I don't know exactly what was going on, but what it seems like was... I, th- I think Moses just got to the end of his rope. He's been leading these people for 40 years. They're grumbling and complaining the whole time. And Moses comes out and he um, presumes to kind of be the judge of Israel. You know, he, God didn't call them rebels. God wasn't mad at them, you know, in that way. This was not, this was not uh, God's intention in this moment was, I think, to teach this generation the same thing he taught the last generation, that he'll provide for them. But Moses was through with it. Moses was fed up, and so he says, Here now, you rebels. Okay? And, then he, and then he kind of presumes to be the one that's bringing about the water. right? Shall we bring forth water for you from this rock? Okay? He doesn't talk about the Lord bringing forth water. And then to strike it, and that has happened before, where the staff has been uh, used to be the kind of the providence of God. You know? But it almost seems like Moses has taken for himself the role that God is supposed to have, and he's not a very good God. He's a very... Judgmental God, here you rebels, okay, I'm mad at you, and so I'm going to bring this water for you out of the rock. And so then he doesn't tell the rock to bring forth water for the people, he strikes the rock as an act of judgment. Look what happens, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, because you did not believe in me, 
to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So God, after Moses does this, God says to Moses, because you have not honored me as holy in the sight of all of this people, you will not enter into the promised land. You will not lead this people into the promised land. So Moses and Aaron both are condemned to die in the wilderness just like this other generation was. Okay? And there's a lot that you can learn from that. But this, this role that Moses plays as the leader okay, of these people, it, it comes with its own temptations. You know, it comes with different kind of temptations. And, and Moses gave in to those temptations. Moses gave in to the temptation to be frustrated with the people that he was leading. Moses gave in to the temptation to act like God instead of being a leader that points his people to God. He kind of stepped into the role as God. And really, Moses acted very unlike God in a judgmental way. And actually, later, later in the New Testament, and like John and in 1 Corinthians, it would say that that rock that he struck is actually Christ, or it, it represents Christ. And so in that way, you see Moses being this harsh judge. And, and in a way, Moses kind of comes to represent the law. Okay, The law, the commandments of God, and if you fail to keep the commandments of God, then you will be punished. Moses is kind of this manifestation of the law, and the, and the wrath that's due to the law, and in that he is striking punishment, he's striking this rock, well, the New Testament says, well, that rock that he struck with that wrath, that anger of the law was Christ, that Christ was struck for us. And the crazy thing is that even in Moses' disobedience in doing that, water still comes out. It still waters all of the people, okay? In the same way when Christ was pierced, water came out, okay? So, so God will happily stand in the judgment of the law to fulfill the law. But God God wants more than just that anger. But so what this, so just to put it simply, what this is saying is Moses too is going to get up right to the edge of the promised land, but he's not going to lead them into it. Moses is going to die before he goes into the promised land too because of this verse. Lastly, in this chapter, um, in verse 14, in this really downer chapter, in verse 14, um, the people of Israel are still kind of trying to go through, and they're heading, they're making their way towards the promised land now, out of the wilderness, and they come to the land of Edom, okay? I'll give somebody a cookie if they can tell me who Edom, we've, we've heard about the origin of Edom in the book of Genesis. Who has who Edom come from? Esau. Who? Esau. Esau, yeah, that's right, Jacob's brother. You get a cookie, Dana, good job. Uh, Edom, remember Jacob and Esau, okay? They were the twins, and they were fighting each other and, and everything like that. Jacob stole the birthright from Esau, and this was kind of where the nation of Israel came from. So Edom, the nation of Edom, and the nations of Israel are brothers, brother nations. But what happens is uh, Israel is trying to go through Edom. Edom has kind of established itself to the southeast of the Promised Land, and Israel is trying to go through Edom to get into the promised land. And so they send messengers to Edom. And, and look what they say. So verses 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. You know all the hardship that we have met. How our fathers went down to Egypt. And we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to Yahweh, he heard our voice. And he sent an angel and he brought us up out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh. 
a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along with we will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I'll pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. So there's a lot of tension between Edom and Israel. It goes all the way back to what happens in the book of Genesis. Isn't that interesting? And you get this sense, and it, and it just kind of continues to, to develop throughout the rest of the Bible. So like when you're reading through the Kings, the book of Kings, Israel and Edom are fighting each other a lot. Okay? And it's always sort of with this sense that like Edom's jealous of the promises that Israel has received. And uh, there's just a lot of family tension there. Why do I say that? Well, because I think one of the neatest books in the Old Testament is the book of Obadiah. It's like the, the shortest book in the Old Testament, I think. Um, and Obadiah is all about God's judgment against Edom. And he's going to destroy them because of stuff like this. Because they have refused to, um, one, love their brother. And two, love the nation that God has chosen to bless. You know, Instead, they're jealous that they have received blessings and that they think that they deserve. And so because of that, they act evilly towards Israel. And the book of Obadiah is the prophet of Obadiah telling Edom that they're going to be totally destroyed because of that. And anybody met an Edomite lately? Nope. They were totally destroyed. So that's prophecy. Anyway, but that's what happens to Israel. Going to chapter 21. So chapter 20 was a bummer chapter. Start of chapter 21. When the Canaanites, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. In Israel, this is the, the new generation, Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of that place was called Hormah. So remember what we saw at the end of chapter 14 with Israel uh, saying, God, sorry, we're sinned. We're going to go in and fight these guys. He says, God's not with you. And they go and they get defeated. Well, that was the last time they engaged in battle. And then 40 years later, here they are. And you see the differences? Okay? They've been attacked, and the people of Israel turn in obedience to God, and they say, God, will you help us defeat these guys? And then they go in, and they totally blow them up. Right? And that is um, really good news, because they're going to have to fight a lot of people and win a lot in order to take possession of the promises. This was the very thing that they were afraid of, wasn't it? When the spies went into the promises, we can't go in there. There's too many guys we have to fight. We can't beat them. But then here's an instance, and it's really not even brought about by any kind of confidence. It's brought about by the fact that they got some people kidnapped. And so they say, God, will you help us rescue our people? And they go in and they totally destroy them. And so now they're thinking like, huh, we're supposed to go and take possession of this promised land but we just defeated these guys, just defeated Arad. So I think we can, maybe we can do it some more. You know? So this is God building confidence in them. Then we get an interesting story in verse 4. If this seems kind of like, I don't know what the right word is, like a, almost like a photo, photo book or something, it kind of just jumps around. It's because they're just recording like the important things that happens 
in this time, you know, and so there may not be a whole lot of continuity between different events. It's sort of episodic. But in, in chapter 21, verse 4, it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, because they couldn't go through it. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What's the worthless food that they loathe? Huh? The manna, the miraculous bread that is coming down from heaven to feed them in the middle of the desert. And they're like, yeah, we're sick of it. You know? Oh, that's, all, that's all of our hearts. We just, we're so quick to kind of get bored with incredibly spiritual things. You know? Things that should, I mean, you ever feel that way just when you're like getting up and reading the Bible? And it's like, gosh, oh, it's so hard for me to read my Bible. This is God talking to us. Like, ah, just so hard for me. I'm, I'm right there too. Um, so they complain again. They speak these words with their mouth. And, and I don't know, you guys know how complaining works. It's not like everybody starts complaining all at once, right? It usually starts with, I mean, generally in my experience, it starts with somebody with a really strong personality. Okay? That, that's one of those people that gets real high and gets real low. And in one of those moments when they're really low, they just want to make everybody else feel real low with them. And so maybe it's just a handful of people that start talking about, you know, how bad the food is. And then other people are like, yeah, you know what? I am kind of sick of manna. And then the next thing you know, everybody's talking to everybody, except to the people that it matters to. None of them have prayed to God and asked for help with that. Instead, they're all just talking to everybody else. And next thing you know, everybody's just complaining. Everybody's just negative. Everybody's just bad. That's sin working like leaven throughout the whole congregation. And God gets mad about it. So in verse 6... This whole place is complaining. It says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Kind of a weird story, isn't it? There's not really anything else that's happened like this in the whole Pentateuch. One of the first things to think of is, um, what's the deal with the, with the serpents? Well, the serpents, okay, does, does the word serpent bring anything else to mind for you? What? The devil. From Genesis, right? Same author. So it's always good. We know Moses wrote Numbers, Moses wrote Genesis. Anytime you see the same author using the same word, you should start there with a connection. So the, the serpent, the first time we've seen serpent in the Bible is with the devil. Okay? And what's the devil do? Well, he comes in and he, and he tempts people to doubt God. He tempts people to rebel against God. He tempts people to question God's goodness and God's plan for them. And so in that way, we see the work of the serpent in what happens in Israel starting to complain. I think in another way, um, where, where is the dangerous part of a snake? A, a venomous snake. You grab, is, is the tail the dangerous part of a venomous snake? Where's the da- it's, it's mouth, yeah. Okay. Well, what's the nature of their sin? Their mouth. Okay. Their sin is venom. Their sin is poison. 
Okay, it's coming out of their mouth. That's what the book of James says. Okay, that the tongue, even though it's a small thing, can set a whole force on fire. Very dangerous. Okay, and we see that working out here. So, just a caution to all of us that our mouths, and this is so true, isn't it? For all the other ways where you can battle sin, our mouths will often betray us. Okay, and then Jesus says, well, it's out really out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So, if anything, the mouth is just letting us know how sinful we are on the inside. Okay. So here are these snakes, these people of Israel going around and just spitting venom all over the place. And so then God sends real snakes in and, and it, they bite them and they kill them, right? Sin has consequences. It, this is the right response of God, is to kill them for their sin, for the rebellion against God. This is, this is right. <coughs> and so what's amazing then is the people say, God, help us. We've sinned. They go to Moses. Moses, we have sinned. Please take these snakes away from us. We know that we deserve this. And so what does God do? He tells Moses to make, make a serpent and put it up on a stick in the middle of the place. And everybody has to look at the serpent, the, the bronze serpent that he made. And then the, the, they'll be cured and it'll all get better. Well, what's that about? Well, in a way, it's really God saying like, Hey, here's your sin, and you need to admit your sin. You need to look at your sin right in the face and admit, this is my sin. And apart from God's grace and forgiveness, apart from some means that God has given to me, there's nothing I can, I can do. So I need to confess my sin, I need to repent of my sin and admit that I need help, and I need forgiveness, that this sin has consequences and I need to repent from it, and that apart from God's help, there's nothing that I can do to save myself. And so God gives them this, this thing in it, and that's how it works. Anyone that, was, look, that looked at the bronze serpent would live. Interesting story, right? Okay. Everybody knows what John 3.16 is, right? And we got John 3.14 memorized? No? Go to John 3.14. This is when Jesus is talking to uh, Nicodemus. Look at John 3.14. Everybody there? Jesus is saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For, you see how it's connected? We always say, God so loved the world. What's it connected to? It's connected to the book of Numbers. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and God, the Son of Man, must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to be like that snake on the stick. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So like the most famous Bible verse ever, John 3.16, is rooted in the context of the book of Numbers. And if you never read the book of Numbers, and if you never help other people read the book of Numbers, then they're not going to really get John 3.16. What's he saying? That all those things that we just said about sin, the root of sin, the devil, the, the nature of sin, that we are sinful, the consequences of sin, that sin brings about death, what Jesus is saying is, I became sin. I became the snake that was lifted up. I bore the consequences. I took the hit from the devil. I took on their sinful nature so that when I'm lifted up, they can look at me in repentance and confession and in faith that God has provided a means for us to be delivered, to be saved. So whoever looks at me lifted up, like that bronze serpent, then they'll be saved from death. 
they'll be safe from their sin no matter what they've done. Pretty awesome, right? Random little paragraph in the book of Numbers that was very important to Jesus. Okay, And then actually, I can't um, remember where it is. It's somewhere in Kings. Maybe I have a cross-reference. Anyway, uh, somewhere in Kings, actually what it says is that the people then started worshiping that bronze snake like its own idol. And so I think it was King Hezekiah actually that broke the bronze snake and got rid of it because they were worshiping it like an idol. So it comes up another time, this this little bronze serpent. But that's pretty cool. Jesus is, uh, is the means that we are delivered from the consequences of our sin by becoming sin. He who knew no sin became sin. He uh, who was not cursed but was blessed became a curse for us so that we could have eternal life. Pretty awesome. Also in chapter 21 at the end, I'm not going to read this, but in verse 21 and then in verse 31, we see two kings, kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og, obviously both really, really big, powerful dudes. Uh, As Israel is making their way towards the promised land, both Sihon and Og come out to fight them, and just like uh, with Arad in the beginning of 21, they defeat Sihon and Og. And you'll actually see a lot of times throughout the rest of uh, the Pentateuch and, and going into the early chapters of the Old Testament that this was such a big victory that people kept on looking back at the defeat of Sihon and Og as saying, like, don't mess with Israel. They beat Sihon and Og. Comes up again and again and again. So here we are. They're kind of wandering around. Things are getting bad. Every time they go out to fight somebody now, they win. And the other nations are paying attention. Right? So chapter 22, this gets really... Interesting. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, to Sihon and Og. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick us up, it will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Peor, or of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me. Since they are too mighty for me, perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So God, uh, or sorry, so um, Balak goes and sends to this guy Balaam. And Balaam is some sort of like sorcerer or some sort of uh, magic guy. And so Balak thinks uh, really the way that all of the people in the ancient Near East thought, and that people even still today think, that there's something called magic, and you can manipulate magic, and if my magic is stronger than your magic, then I win and I get what I want. And so he, he's engaging in what he believes to be spiritual warfare. Now, there's a lot, and I don't want to get caught up in the weeds on this, you know. Um, there is no such thing as magic, right? There, there's only God and God's will. Okay, so anything that looks like magic is really um, either God or God allowing the opposite of God, not even the opposite, but, but evil spiritual forces to do things 
and maybe make it look like magic. Okay? So it's, it's a way of blinding the eyes of unbelievers. It's a way of continuing to let them exist in a worldview that's totally antithetical to what the truth is. Um, but, but it does happen. Okay? And so there, there is spiritual stuff that happens, but I don't want you to think that it's magic. And like if I say enough curses or I do enough stuff, then I can manipulate it. I think God does allow for people in their blindness to interact with some really evil stuff. And God gives the, the, you know, the boundaries for how that evil stuff can operate. Um, so that's kind of what's going on here. If you have more questions about that, go ask somebody smarter than me, because I don't really know. I don't get all of this. But what ends up happening is they send to, to Balaam, and they say, Balaam, will you curse Israel? Because whoever you curse is cursed, and whoever you bless is blessed. So they send, send to him... Um, And in verse 7, it says, So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam, and they gave them Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. Really weird. I don't get everything that, you know, I mean, we could talk a lot more about this, but, but even Balaam, who is somehow aware of this more spiritual realities, he says, Well, I can't really just do whatever I want. There, there's some guy in charge. And so I have, to, I have to ask this guy that's in charge what, what he thinks. And so, verse 9, it says, God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me, saying, Behold, a people have come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these, and they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his whole house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. There's a lot of questions as to what exactly is going on with this. Um, some people see that when he says, well, even if Balak was going to give me his whole house full of silver and gold, it's sort of a veiled way of saying, like, if you gave me some more money, I probably would come. You know, um, Some people also think that maybe you know, God knows that Balaam's heart is being led astray by, by all of this. I mean, they're honoring him. They're sending more important people to him. They're sending money to him, things like that. And so God is kind of like, look, they're asking you to come, come. Okay, but it's kind of like in the way where you know your mom would do that sometimes. Or it's like, you want to do that? Go, go do that. You know, like I shouldn't do that. Um, but he he goes and he does it. And so verse twenty two, God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on a donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. 
Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way for either to turn to the, re- to the left or the right. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? So the donkey just started talking. And Balaam doesn't seem put off by that at all. (laughs) Balaam said to the donkey, Because you've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and he fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. So Balaam had um, a donkey that was much more smart and spiritual than he was. Okay, And so the donkey knows to, to trust the Lord, to listen to the Lord, and to not even tempt himself with the thought of opposing the Lord or going against the Lord. But uh, really, if anything, Balaam just learned a lesson. Okay, um, Just like I spoke through this donkey, I'm going to speak through you. Okay, And you don't get to say what you want to say. You're going to say what I tell you to say. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Verse 36, When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send you to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. And Balak, struck, er, Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Balmoth Baal, and from there he saw a fraction of the people. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said. And Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram, and Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me I will tell you. And he went to a bare height. And God met Balaam, and Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Now remember, Balak has paid him a lot of money, brought him all of this way so that he will curse Israel so that they can go out and fight Israel. And so this is Balaam. He opens up his mouth, and he says, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? 
How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So this is pretty cool. So this is like a pagan sorcerer, and he's coming, and God is speaking prophecies and blessings out upon Israel through him. And so what, are the, what is the blessing, the prophecy that he speaks here? Well, if you remember with what God said to Abraham, this sounds a lot like Abraham. This sounds a lot like the fulfillment of the, God, the promises that God had made to Abraham. How can I curse whom God is cursed? This nation is blessed. Well, that's what God said to Abraham. I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What does he say? Well, they're not counted among the nations. Okay? They're a different nation, and they're blessed. And then he says, who can count the dust of Jacob? Remember what I said, that, that your offspring will be uncountable, as many as the sand on the seashore and as, in, as the stars in the sky. And he says, look at this great nation. Okay? And so he's saying, this is cle- they are clearly blessed, and I can only affirm the blessing that they receive from God. And so Balak gets really f- mad at him, and then he goes on, and he says, well, let's try a different place. Maybe we're not in the right place. And, and he even says, like, let's, just, let, let's just try and see like, just part of Israel. If you can just curse part of Israel, you don't have to curse the whole nation of Israel. Just curse this little part of them. That, that probably will be good enough. So they do the same thing. And, and in verse 18, or I'm sorry, in, uh, look at verse 17. So Balaam goes again. They offer the sacrifices. He prays. He comes back. He came to him, and behold... He was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of the king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What has God wrought? Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has, it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. But Balaam answered Balak, And did I not tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? And Balak said to Balaam, Come now, I'll take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. You think that's going to work? Nope. Wait, tries again. If you look down in chapter 24... Verse 3, he takes up his discourse again. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees that the waters water. 
Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations and his adversaries and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. So again, the promise of Abraham. But do you get this? So it's moving from just saying that they are blessed, God has blessed them, God cannot change his mind or lie, he can't say you're blessed and then take the blessing away, no amount of divination against you will succeed, and that's true for you, if you're in Christ, that's who, God can't take those promises away from you, but now it's starting to move to be like, okay, this is who Israel is, Israel is like a lion, and they're going to rise up, and they're going to eat everybody, okay, and it's moving more to a future prophecy, okay, that Israel is going, to, is going to succeed. God is for them. God is like the, the horns of a wild ox going before them. So you think about, isn't that a cool picture? You ever seen a mean bull or something like that? Okay, And it's saying God is going before them and he's just going to knock everybody out of the way. Israel is unstoppable like a lion. You don't mess with them. Same thing, Balak gets mad at him for saying this and he says, I'm going to try you one more time. I don't know why he keeps trying. I'm going to try one more time, and this time you better curse them. Well, then we get the last prophecy, the last oracle. In chapter 24, verse 15, it says, He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be dispossessed, Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivor of cities. Who do you think he's talking about? I see him, but not yet. I behold him, but it's not near, but it's coming. A scepter is going to rise out of Israel, and he is going to have dominion, and he is going to conquer everybody. Who do you think he's talking about? King David, that's right. Except no, but it is. It's actually King David... And then out of King David, it's Christ. Okay, He's saying, I'm going to see... Because right now, Israel doesn't have a king. But I'm going to see a scepter come out of Israel. And in that, in that line, it's going to be the, the lion, the lion of Judah, that is going to come out and they're going to conquer. And so this is probably like the most explicit prophecy about Jesus in the Pentateuch. I see this star... And that's good. You remember what, what brought the wise men to Bethlehem in the first place? A star rising. I see a star. He was, he was, and remember the wise men were not Jewish. Okay, they were, they were pagan mystics of some kind. And yet their eyes were open and they were able to see the king of Israel. The one that's going to be the fulfillment of all the blessings, all the promises of Jesus. And so they came and they, they bowed down to the, to the king. In the same way, here's this pagan sorcerer and he says, look. 
this is what I see. I see a star. There's going to be one that comes out of Israel, and he's going to be the king he's going to conquer. And actually, for the rest of this, he sees some other visions about other nations, about Amalek and about uh, Cain, the Kenites, and about um, Asher and Eber, all of those things you can look. All of these things end up coming true okay, in the, in the history. So he's making prophecies about world history, things like that. And it all comes true. And then it says, verse 25, Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went on his way. And he was probably very upset about that. Verse, or in chapter 25, um, this is probably happening simultaneously to what was happening uh, while, it's kind of like um, Mount Sinai. So Moses was on top of Mount Sinai, being, uh, receiving kind of this, this word from God and these amazing promises and blessings from God. And then on the ground, Aaron was building a golden calf and everybody was being unfaithful. Kind of the same thing. God's doing this really cool thing with Balaam up on top of the mountain and then on the ground, this is what's happening. So while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Come on, guys. Because this is, you know... We saw that, that Balak is the king of Moab. And so Balak's trying to curse Israel so that he can fight against them. But then all it took was the, the ladies of Moab coming in and, and presenting themselves before Israel. And actually what we see later in the book of Numbers was that that was Balaam's idea. So Balaam had them uh, go in. And that the whole reason that these women went into tempt the people of Israel was not just to tempt them sexually, but to tempt them to worship Baal as part of their religious practices. And so they would actually have sex to worship Baal. And so they sent them in. And so while Balaam's up here blessing Israel in spite of maybe what he would rather say down on the ground, Israel is cursing themselves. And so, so they whore after the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And so Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Just a little point of fact. What is, so they kill them. What do they do with them? They hung them. Okay? And we saw that. or We'll see it in Leviticus. It says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Okay? And so these are idol they're idolaters. And so they kill them and they hang them up. And it's the most disrespectful, most disgraceful way that somebody could die. And so they hang them up. And then it says in verse 6, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So even after they had killed all of these people because of their idol worship, there's just such a spirit of rebellion and such an, like, a cultural acceptance of sin that you know this other guy just grabs a Moabite woman and just brings them into his, his house okay, to have sex with her. In front of everybody, I mean, just blatantly, I feel like there's a lot of like flagrant sexual sin in our culture today with almost this spirit that's like, I'm going to do this right in front of you, and I dare you to tell me that this isn't okay. Okay? That's kind of the, the, the picture that I get in my head. So this guy brings her into this tent, and when Phinehas, verse 7, when Phinehas, or Phineas, the son of Eliezer, 
the son of Aaron, the priest, so this is Aaron's grandson, when Phinehas saw this, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly, presumably while they were having sex. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Okay, so Phineas sees what they're doing. Dude grabs a spear, walks into their bedroom, and stabs both of them. Okay? I'm, I plan on reading the Bible to my kids. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get to this part. You know? But what is this teaching us? Okay, first of all, and it, and it says kind of as a passing that there was a plague, all these people were dying. Okay, and Phineas was... Um, really what it was, was that he was zealous for the Lord. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So that's how God thinks about sin, okay? And Phineas sees what's happening, okay? And it doesn't matter what the culture is saying. It doesn't matter that this culture is saying, this is fine, there's nothing wrong with this. This is art. This is tasteful. This is not uh, anything to be, you know, actually, we're going to applaud this. We're going to encourage this. We're going to award this. We're going to say that this is right and good and proper, and if you have a problem with it, it's just because you're backwards and you don't understand. It doesn't matter what the culture is saying. Phineas knows what the Lord says. And Phineas says, the Lord hates this. And so Phineas knows that that deserves death, and Phineas goes in with a spear and kills him. And God says, good job. You get it. You get how bad sin is. Right? And then he says, you are going to be you're going to have a perpetual priesthood. Your family, your line of Aaron, will be the priesthood, the high priesthood, until, until a better priesthood. Okay. And that's, and that's the case. So the, the, the line of the high priest goes down through Phineas that whole time. But then we get to Jesus, who the book of Hebrews says is the high priest of a better covenant. Okay. Phineas was zealous for the Lord according to the old covenant. Okay. And, and knew that sin deserved death and that God's means of Encouraging that was through his covenant community, carrying out the death penalty when sin deserves death. Well, Jesus says, yeah, sin does deserve death. And we see that Jesus is just as zealous for the, the word of God as Phineas is. Remember when Jesus goes into the temple and he flips over the tables? Okay, Because he says, this is sin. This is wrong. So Jesus is zealous too. And that's what they say about Jesus. His zeal for my father's house will consume him. But Jesus says, sin deserves death. So I'm going to hang on a tree and die. I will let you pierce me for the sin that you've committed. So Phineas is right, and he is a good high priest. Jesus is just a better one. Because Phineas would, would go and, and carry out the death penalty for those that have sinned. Jesus will go and he will take the death penalty. And he will die the most cursed death that anybody could die by being hang, hung, hanged on a tree. So Jesus is a better Phineas. For the rest of the book, okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna read it, but for the rest of the book, 
what you're going to get is a lot of, um, again, things that have almost, not, not patched together, but there, there's only so much paper, you know. There's only so much that they can make record of. And so they're, they're making some records. This is all presumably things that kind of come in succession. But what it is all doing, you'll see in like chapter 26, there's another census. So the book of Numbers is called Numbers because it starts with a census. Well, in chapter 26, there's going to be another census, this time counting all of the people that um, are in this next generation, the second generation, because everybody else has died. What you'll see is that for the most part, all of the tribes of Israel have grown. They've gotten bigger. So even though they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they have uh, clearly not been cursed. Um, but then you're going to see some other things that all of which, some legal proceedings, some different rules, you will see some, some new customs that are established, customs about new festivals that they're supposed to do and, and ways that they're supposed to offer offerings, all kind of similar to that legal literature that we saw. But the thing that you, when you read through this on your own that you need to be thinking about is all of this is very expectant that they will be in the promised land. So these are all rules that have underwriting them the expectation that the only way that they can carry out these rules is if they are in a land. Okay, And so it's got this increasing sense, even the census, the census is them taking a census so that they can figure out how to apportion the boundaries in the promised land. It's like we need to know how many are in each tribe so that when we take possession of the promised land, we know who needs how much area. Okay, so all of it is just with this new growing expectancy that God is going to give them the promised land. And the last thing that um, we'll see in that is in chapter 27. We'll finish with this. I'll just read this because we remember. So, okay, they're excited. They're, there's all of these, this expectation that they're going into the promised land, but then we remember, oh, wait, but what about Moses? Okay, because Moses sinned against the Lord. He did not honor the God as holy. And so Moses is not going into the promised land. But we are sure that we are going to go into the promised land. We've been defeating all of these kings. There's been all this good stuff that's happened. God has blessed us through um, pagan sorcerers. Like, I feel really good about this, but what about Moses? So it says in chapter 27, verse 12, The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. The mountain of Abarim is just on the other side of the promised land, on the river that bounds the promised land. They're going to look out. Moses is going to look out onto the promised land. Verse 13, when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Isn't that cool? So Moses, God says, Moses, you're going you're gonna to die soon. And Moses' first thought is, what about my people? They need a leader. God, will you appoint a new leader for them? And what does he say? So they won't be like sheep without a shepherd. That's what Jesus, that's what the Gospels say, that when Jesus looked out on the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Moses is being very much like Christ in this. And so he asked God to provide a new leader. Verse 18, so the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all of the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. 
and he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel, with whom the whole congregation. And Moses did as the, as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eliezer the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So God says, um, okay, I'm going to establish Joshua. And we've seen Joshua before, right? Joshua was uh, Moses' right-hand man when Moses sent the spies in. Joshua was the one from the tribe of Levi that went in along with Caleb from Judah. Those were the two good ones. Okay, So Joshua is um, the one that God has appointed to follow this. But this is what I think is really cool. Joshua in uh, Hebrew, Yeshua, okay, means the Lord saves. right? Moses means uh, draws out. Remember we talked about that? So Moses is the one that drew Israel out of Egypt. But Yeshua means God saves, or God is my salvation, and uh, really Yahweh is my salvation. And there is only so far, like I said, if Moses represents the law, there's only so far that Moses can get into bringing us into the promised land, but ultimately it's incapable. That judgment that comes from the law will only lead to death, like we saw with all the generation that died in the wilderness. It is God's plan for the law to only go so far, but it's for the, the one that follows the law, this Yeshua, to be the one that leads us into the promised land. Okay? Well, Yeshua is a very common name in Hebrew. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't you want your name to be Yahweh saves? That's a good name, right? So when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, says, Mary, you're going to have a baby. I want you to name him Yeshua because he is the one that will save his people from their sins. So Jesus' name really is Joshua. And it was Joshua, the better Joshua, that is going to be the one that leads us. The law cannot, cannot lead us into the promised land, into salvation. Okay, we, need, we need Joshua, we need Jesus to be the one who will be that great high priest who will take the punishment of the law on himself. Okay, and it's through this Yeshua, through Jesus Christ, that all the people will, will be saved and will be brought into the promised land. All of that from the book of Numbers. Isn't that awesome? There's so much more good stuff in here. So I hope you guys keep reading it, um, finish it out. But we're going to start Deuteronomy, which is the last book of the Pentateuch, next week. All right? Who's excited? Let's pray. Jesus, please help us to think about these things and the weight of our own sin, the, the power of the law that we all deserve to be, to be pierced for our own transgressions. Like Isaiah says, you were pierced for our transgressions. You are such a great high priest. You truly are um, better than Moses. You're better than Phineas. You're better than Joshua because um, while they were all so faithful, you were faithful to the point of death, even death on a cross, hanging on a tree for us. Lord, would, would we think about that and would that cause us to be more faithful? Would we think about that and think about what an amazing promise that is that if we have looked on you, we will be saved. We are saved. And, and if that's the promise that you've made, God, what a good truth that you don't change your mind and you don't lie. If we're saved, we're saved. And nothing can come up against us. Lord, help us to think about that, that you're our champion when we have to face um, our, own, our own battles, that you go before us like the horns of an ox. 
And God, that you do have a promised land waiting for us. A land where Christ is. So would we not grow too attached to this wilderness that we're wandering in? And we certainly would we not long for, for our, our own Egypts where we were slaves. But would we long for that promised land? And would you sustain us? Would you feed us by your word? And would you keep our, our shoes fitted with the, the readiness that comes from the gospel until that time when we enter into the promised rest? Following King Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.